Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. This is the word of God. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your son, Jesus. He is indeed worthy of all our praise, of all of our efforts, of our lives. Lord, we want to see this morning and this year, we want to know in the deepest parts of our hearts that Jesus is better. Open the eyes of our hearts to see this morning. In your son's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It may come as no surprise to you, but I love barbecue. And I, I got to tell you, one of my laments, I love Colorado, I love Denver. It's been home for 12 years for us now. But one of my laments is the lack of good barbecue. I mean, you would think for a place where there are just excellent cattle ranches everywhere, that there'd be good barbecue to go with it. But there's not. If you've been to Texas, or if you've been to North Carolina, had Court Carolina barbecue, if you've been to Memphis, you know that there's better barbecue than there is here in Denver. But I digress. If I go to a barbecue place, and there's pulled pork, and chicken, and maybe turkey, and, and, and smoked sausage, I love all that. All that's great. I, I love all the sides that go with barbecue, baked beans, and green beans, and jalapeno cornbread and the sweet cornbread. I like all of it. It's all good. But, but if there's brisket, and especially if you've heard of this before, if there's wet brisket, the kind where they leave the fat on, that's the best. That's the best. I'm not going to waste too many calories on the other stuff. I mean, it's, it's good, but it's not the best. And that, that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. Giving up some of the good so that we can get more of the great. Now, this is going to be, for those who uh, regularly attend here at Orchard, this is going to be a different kind of, of sermon. This is our, uh, no, normally uh, we preach expositorily through the, pre, uh, through the uh, scriptures. You know, we take a, a book, we go through that book verse by verse. We want to wring as much as we can out of that understand what's happening, learn more about the Lord. How do we apply that to our lives? This morning is a little bit different, though. We're going to talk about our theme for 2021, which is Jesus is better. And so 
we're going to use this text here in Luke that you've seen, but there are a couple of other texts that I might reference along the way. And I just wanted to give you that heads up. So again, Jesus is better is our theme for 2021. Now, the next three weeks, um, Kat's already out of the bag. You can see in your bulletins there. Uh, we're going to be in Habakkuk next week and the following two weeks after that. But then, for a good part, if not most of 2021, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. And one, there are many themes, of course, but one of the preeminent themes of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is supreme. He is better. That's what we're going to see this year in the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of reasons why Jesus is better. Without Jesus, we have no sacrificial lamb to atone for our sins. Without Jesus, we have no high priest who continually intercedes on our behalf with the Father. Without Jesus, we have no Savior who is tempted in every way as us and yet found without sin. Without Jesus, we have no Lord who loves us so much to give himself up to death and humiliation on the cross so that we might live. All of these things lead us to proclaim Jesus is better. And I think most of us here would say that. There's no, I don't think any of us would argue against that statement that Jesus is better. But I think it would be helpful to just take a moment to think about the ways that Jesus is better. Or how is he better compared to what? Jesus is better than my career. Jesus is better than my family. Jesus is better than my church. Jesus is better than my money. Jesus is better than power. Jesus is better than my comfort. Jesus is better than predictability and routine. Jesus is better than new experiences. Jesus is better than my home. Jesus is better than being respected. Jesus is better than being intelligent. Jesus is better than being someone. Jesus is better than anonymity. Jesus is better than your spouse, fiancé, boyfriend, or girlfriend. Jesus is better than being well-liked getting good grades, or going to a top university. Jesus is better than the approval of others. Jesus is better than maintaining appearances. Jesus is better than being authentic. Jesus is better than autonomy, choice, and freedom. Jesus is better than any achievement Jesus is better than being productive or busy. Jesus is better than being in control. Jesus is better than my politics. Jesus is better than my president. 
Jesus is better than my country. All of these things are good things. They're kind of like the pulled pork and the smoked turkey and the jalapeno cornbread. They're there for us to appreciate and enjoy, but they're not the showstopper. The showstopper is Jesus. For life to operate properly in the way that God intended, so we, we can't just say that Jesus is better. We need to live that way. And so this year, as we move through Hebrews, among the many things that we'll be learning and remembering and relearning, we will come back to the idea that Jesus is better. Better than any other thing that we might try to elevate above him. But the question is, if Jesus is better, what can you do personally? If he's the best part of the spiritual buffet, how do we get as much as possible of him? Because Jesus is better, how then should we live? Now, I think some of us will immediately think of doing things. Give to the poor, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek, pray for your enemies. And we must be obedient in those commands, that's for sure. But we also need to tend to our inner lives. I can be outwardly, outwardly obedient, but if my heart is left untended, that's eventually going to catch up to me. One of the analogies I love that I'll share from Paul Tripp, if there's a tree, if there's a dead tree in my yard, an apple tree, I can go buy a bushel of apples and get a nail gun and walk out to that, in a ladder, and walk out and start nailing apples to the tree. And it'll look like, that that's, well, that's a fruitful tree. But it won't be long until those apples rot and fall to the ground. And that tree never actually produces any real fruit. Even a barely alive tree, a tree may be alive, but if all it's doing is trying to survive, it can't produce fruit. It's not possible to do that. It's just trying to survive. And so the question is, don't you want to be a Psalm 1 tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in its season? The answer to that is yes. So what can you do to be planted next to these streams of water? Well, one way to tend to your heart would be to join a home group. This coming spring semester, our home groups are going to be using a book called Gentle and Lowly to get a better understanding of Jesus' heart for his elect people. If you aren't in a home group, I just would ask you to consider to join one um, and to be a part of this church-wide initiative. I just think it'll be a wonderful thing that we're all reading the same book together. And if that's not possible for you, for whatever reason, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book and read it. And the other way, and there's many ways, but another way that I want to highlight this morning, which will be the, the bulk of the rest of this sermon, is this idea of personal discipleship. What is personal discipleship? It's the practice of drawing near to God through Christ powered by his Holy Spirit through the practice of spiritual disciplines. I'll say that for you again. Personal discipleship is the practice of drawing near to God through Christ, powered by 
His Holy Spirit through the practice of spiritual disciplines. And so throughout this year, we're going to highlight different spiritual disciplines and give you a way to practice them. Now, I want to be careful to say this right now. The goal is not to become proficient in the spiritual discipline itself, whether it's Bible reading or memorization or what have you. The goal is to draw nearer to God. We want to be so taken by God, by His love for us, that all other good things pale in comparison to Him. They seem like rubbish compared to the greatness and goodness of knowing God. But before we can get to the doing of the spiritual disciplines, we need to get to the being of our hearts. Now Mary, and this is not Jesus' mother in our passage this morning, but Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, she understood what this meant. So if you're following along in your outline, this is point one, the heart of personal discipleship. So I just want to look at two things briefly. Brother Paul was kind enough to read the passage for us, so I won't do that again. I just want to look at two things from this passage. The first is what Mary does, and number two, what does Jesus say? First, what does Mary do? Luke writes that she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now take note first of her posture. She sat at his feet. And it's not only that she was sitting at his feet, she listened to his teaching. She gave attention to the words he was saying. Her energy was focused on him. She wasn't trying to act on his words or even to dialogue with him. She simply came to him, sat at his feet, and listened to him teach. Both her physical posture of sitting at his feet and her mental posture of giving her full attention to his words are the posture of a student to a teacher or that of an apprentice to a master. She was learning not just the concepts of Jesus' teaching, but his ways. Mary knew that there were many things to do. But she couldn't help herself but to sit at Jesus' feet. I even think there might be another word that you could use to describe what Mary does here. She surrenders. She knew. It's not like Martha, off, as Martha is off getting ready and doing all these things, it's not like you know, Mary was completely unaware that these things needed to be done. But she chose to sit at Jesus' feet and to surrender. So that's what Mary does. But what does Jesus say? Well, first of all, Martha, the reason Jesus speaks is that Martha has actually interrupted Jesus in his teaching. Can you imagine that? Interrupting a king, let alone the king of kings. And the, and the interruption wasn't an emergency like, um, hey, Jesus, the house is on fire. You might want to go outside now. That's not what it was. This was simply to say, hey, it's not fair. I'm working and she's not. And yet, and yet, look at Jesus' response. He corrects her, but with the utmost gentleness. And I just want you to think for a moment. Compare this. This is one of the, I think, the beautiful things that we're going to see in the book, Gentle and Lowly. Compare this to how Jesus responds to those who are not his. How does he respond 
to the Pharisees. He blasts the Pharisees. You whitewashed tombs! But to those he loved, Martha, Martha, gentle and lowly is our Savior. So Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus says only one thing is necessary. Note that he doesn't say, Martha, what you are doing is bad. He doesn't say that. Instead, he just says that one thing is truly necessary. And that is what you see your sister Mary doing now. She has chosen the good portion to sit at my feet and to learn from me. And guess what else he says? It won't be taken away from her. It's been said that good is the enemy of great. Martha chose good things. She did. Serving, cleaning, making the meal, and so forth. But the good thing she chose was the enemy of the great thing that Mary chose, and to worship at Jesus' feet and to learn his ways by his teaching. So the question for us then is, how often do we choose what's good at the expense of what's great? Feasting on the greatness of Jesus, sitting at his feet to learn and worship, is what the inner life of the believer should be. This is what Jesus tells us in his interaction with Mary and Martha. This is the heart of personal discipleship, this posture of sitting and listening at Jesus' feet. So if that's the posture, that's the heart, what is the way of personal discipleship? It's widely acknowledged that Michael Phelps is the greatest swimmer of all time. He's got 28 Olympic medals, 23 of those are gold medals, three are silvers and two are bronze. He set the record for the most gold medals. He uh, beat Mark Spitz. Mark Spitz had seven gold medals. Um, He set the record with eight gold medals at the 2008 Beijing Games. I mean, really, if you think about it, his success transcended the sport. Between the Olympics, the World Championships, and the Pan Pacific Championships, he captured a mind-boggling 66 gold medals 14 silver, and 3 bronze over the course of 16 years. God gave him the means to be so successful. He's the right build, broad shoulders, long arms. I wouldn't know anything about that. Big feet, twitchy muscles, and a world-class cardiovascular system. But all of that would have been for naught. There are plenty of six-foot-five guys with size 14 feet who are good swimmers. They really are. In order to make the most of what God gave him, he had to apply himself, and he did. He routinely trained 25 to 30 hours a week and swam no less than 50 miles a week. That's a lot of time staring at a black line at the bottom of a pool. To give you some perspective on that distance, that's like swimming from here to the Air Force Academy. I don't know if I could swim from here to Broadway. (laughs) 
But here's the thing. His training wasn't just sort of all, it wasn't just, well, let me get in the pool and swim for 30 hours this week. His training was very specific and focused. He was always working on his stroke to make it more efficient. He was never, ever satisfied with himself. So here's the thing. What's true about Michael Phelps in the physical realm is true of the believer in the spiritual realm. God has given us the means to know him. And not just with head knowledge, but with heart knowledge as well. These tools, there are tools available to us to become more like him, to grow in godliness. We call these the spiritual disciplines. But we need to work at them. I like the way that the Apostle Paul, our brother Paul, said in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one just beating the air. Michael Phelps didn't swim laps forever, pointlessly. But I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So then, how should we define our spiritual disciplines? How do they fit into this idea of personal discipleship? Well, Donald Whitney wrote a book called The Spiritual Disciplines for a Godly Life. And it's an excellent reference if you're curious about what the spiritual disciplines are, how to apply them more in your life. I would highly recommend this resource to you. This is how he defines the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are those personal and corporate disciplines that promote spiritual growth. They are the habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times. Now, here's the thing. Spiritual disciplines are not an end unto themselves. They are a means to an end. Thinking that they are the end themselves, that they were the goal. That was the error that the Pharisees made. That was their mistake. They equated doing with godliness. They equated that the activities of scripture reading and prayer and tithing and fasting, that those are the things that made them holy and acceptable. But that's not how it works. I can go out for a run this afternoon, but that doesn't make me fit. However, Regular running creates the right conditions for my heart and my lungs and my legs to be fit. In the same way, the spiritual disciplines create the fertile soil whereby God can transform us. But we must be careful. We are sown, and this is important. I think in the history, I just in the history of the church, there's been, I think, hesitation around the spiritual disciplines, concern around works-based salvation and these kinds of things. And I'll address that a little bit more in a minute. But it is important that we are watching our focus as we think about spiritual disciplines, as we tackle these things in 2021 as a church. We're so prone to focus on right behavior and we lose the focus on right hearts. This is how Dallas Willard puts it. The external manifestation of Christ's likeness is not, however the focus of the process. 
And when it is made the main emphasis, the process will certainly be defeated, falling into deadening legalisms and pointless parochialism. That is what has happened so often in the past. And this fact is a major barrier to wholeheartedly embracing the spiritual disciplines in the present. So the potential for error, for legalism, for behavioral modification, for nailing apples to your tree, as opposed to a changed and a transformed heart, it's real. That danger is real. But it shouldn't, it should not prevent us from putting forth the effort. More on that in a minute. Back to the spiritual disciplines. How do they work? How do they work? Well, for any of you who played sports, they're like wind sprints at the end of practice. Why do they ever call them wind sprints? Is it because you get winded while sprinting? They're like wind sprints, though, at the end of practice. How often in your sport, if you played a sport, did you ever run 50 yards in a straight line? That never happens. But you do them to build up endurance. You, you do them to build up strength in your legs and your lungs. If you're musical and you play an instrument, it's the same as playing scales. I mean, what's the point? Well, the point is to drill into you so that it's second nature when you're on the spot. So that's the first reason. They, the spiritual disciplines work in the same way that, that scales and music and wind sprints and, and practice work. They, they create this environment in which we can respond in the right way when we're on the spot. It also works in the, in, in the sense of putting off the old man and putting on the new. We fill up with the best stuff and we, and we, we push out the bad. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 is an excellent reference here. To put off your old self, to just pick up right in verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt, through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So as we put off, we also must put on. And the spiritual disciplines help us in that. And then lastly, with, as it relates to spiritual disciplines, and I thought this was particularly insightful. I got this again from Dallas Willard. It actually, they can create the space for us to recognize sinful attitudes in our hearts and even just the deceitfulness of our hearts. Here's how he said it. Your mind will really talk to you when you begin to deny fulfillment of your desires and you will find how subtle and shameless it is. For example, our righteous judgments on others may, as we practice solitude or service, be recognized as ways of putting them down and us up. Our extreme busyness may be revealed as the inability to trust God or unwillingness to give others a chance to contribute. Our readiness to give our opinions may turn out to be contempt for the thoughts and words of others or simply a willingness to shut them up. So it gives us that opportunity. So that's how they work. So what are the spiritual disciplines? Well, we're going to, again, highlight some of these. We won't be able to do all of these this year as we go through the year. We'll highlight some of these and encourage you to do them. But here are just a, a brief list. And you can go out and see there are different lists. But this is from Donald Whitney's book. There's prayer, 
worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, silence, solitude, and by the way, all three of those kind of go together as they're, they're sort of disciplines of denial. When you fast, you deny yourself food. In silence, you deny yourself the ability to, to listen and to speak. It's solitude of social interaction. There's journaling. There's fellowship. The first spiritual discipline, though, which I have not mentioned yet, and it's the first one that we'll focus on this year, is Bible intake. We start with the Bible because there is nothing more important for the spiritual life and growth of a believer. In the scriptures, we find that God has revealed himself to us. We find his power in creation. We find his redemption to the fall of man in Jesus. We find his restoration of his rightful rule in the new heavens and the new earth. We find that from the fall of Adam and Eve to the coming of Jesus, that his promises are sure and true. We find that his sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we, like them, fall short, fall short of God's law and are by nature rebels against God. In his scriptures, we find that in his infinite love, he does not excuse our sin and rebellion, but instead makes a way for it to be dealt with through his son Jesus and specifically by his death. In the scriptures, we find that we must repent and trust not in our own righteousness to make us right with God, but in Jesus' death and righteousness to make us right. In the scriptures, we find that there are ways to live and not live which please God. And none of, here's the thing, none of this information can be found anywhere else. It is only available in the Bible. Don Whitney puts it simply, the most transforming practice available to us is the disciplined intake of Scripture. And doesn't that really jive with Romans 12 too? Be renewed by the transforming of your mind? So what are the different forms of Bible intake? Well, there's reading, there's studying, there's hearing. You're hearing the Word of God this morning as we've read it a few times. There's memorizing, which, oh, by the way, is not just for little kids. There's meditating, not in any sort of weird Eastern sense, but there's meditating, there's thinking on the Word of God, mulling a single passage or a single verse in your mind. I think we all know, I think I'm truly preaching to the choir this morning on this point, but why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? I think it's simple as this. It just requires a plan and perseverance. It requires a plan and perseverance. If we're not intentional, it's definitely not going to happen. But even when we are intentional, stuff happens. And so you've got to have perseverance. But let's start with the plan, specifically a reading plan. Now, as you know, if you've got the Bible app on your phone, you know there's a thousand different Bible reading plans. And read, if you don't have to, to, to take the plan I'm going to recommend, just want you to read your Bible. But it is important that you pick a plan, and one that you can do. And there are many options. But I just want to give you one here this morning, and would encourage you. I found it very useful in my own life. And want to share this with you as well. It's called the five-day Bible reading plan. 
the five-day Bible reading plan. I'll give you five reasons why I like it. Number one, it takes you through the entire Bible in one year. Not that there's anything magical about that, but there is a nice rhythm to it. Number two, it's chronological. So some Bible in a year reading plans will have you just start Genesis and you end up in Revelation, and that's great. But it is nice, I'll tell you, having done this a couple of times now, uh, the chronological plan, it's helpful to sort of get the overall arc, the, the narrative, the story of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. It has readings from both the Old Testament and the New Testament each day, and from the Psalms most days as well. It's designed for you to read, this is one of the best features, I think. It's designed for you to read Monday through Friday, giving you Saturday and Sunday off as days to read something else, or to catch up, because you fell behind. You missed a couple of days along the way. And it can be printed on an 8.5 by 11 that has check boxes for each day and for each week. And if you're like me, that's incredibly valuable and motivating to see those check marks go down. Yes, I'm making progress. And so we've actually printed out 50 copies of the reading plan and are sitting on the Connect desk. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible reading plan in place already for 2021, please pick up a copy of it on your way out this morning and start. In fact, you could start tomorrow and get a week's head start. Build in a little slot for yourself. All right. So, you got to have a plan. Secondly, it requires perseverance. Listen, we start every year fired up, right? We're going to run through brick walls. This is going to be the year that I finally read the Bible in a year. But by February, we're fading, and we're already a week or two behind. Here's my thought for you this morning. That doesn't matter. Start where you left off. If the one-year plan takes 15 months or 18 months or two years, so what? There's no prize for reading the Bible in one year. The point is that you are trying. You're putting in the effort. Listen, we talked about our rescuer in the previous service. God will never give up on you. So don't give up because you fall behind a couple of weeks, a month. So now's a good time, I think, to quote our brother Paul again, and this time from Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. I know this will be a first very familiar. I think it quite appropriate, however, given the difficulties of this previous year. Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. One thing I do. That's interesting. One thing he says that he does. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was talking about Knowing, if you look at the verses just above that, Paul is talking about knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection, not just in his mind, but in his heart. The sharing of his sufferings and becoming like Jesus in his death so that, as Paul says, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the high calling of life in Jesus pressing on towards the goal of Christ Jesus. 
So this is the method or the way of personal discipleship. But I want to lastly just close this morning by thinking about and talking about the question of personal discipleship. The question of personal discipleship. So Jesus says, you know, he shares that parable. This guy that builds his house on the rock. The storms come. The house withstands. There's a guy that built his house on the sand. The storms come, and the house is washed away. I don't really like saying this, but I'm afraid it's true. We want the benefits of building our house on the rock of Jesus without ever picking up a shovel to lay the foundation. But wait a minute, Ben. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Isn't effort against grace? After all, I'm a sinner saved by grace, Ben. There's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. So I'm not going to stumble into legalism and salvation by works. Won't I stumble into legalism and salvation by works if I become intentional and put forth effort? No, you won't. Your salvation is by grace. But we work out our salvation with Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, with effort. Note this, in the same passage where Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart, he also said what? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. In Luke 14, 27, he said this, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In his great commission, Jesus said, go and make disciples. He didn't say, go and make converts. He calls us to discipleship. And a disciple actively follows, obeys, and learns from his teacher. Last Dallas Willard quote, I promise. But it's so appropriate here. I actually have this written in one of my Bibles. Grace is not opposed to effort but it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. My fear is that we have come to Christ for salvation and for the benefits of being a part of his family. And there are wonderful benefits of being a member here at Orchard. But we have not come to him to be transformed into his likeness. We think salvation is easy, transformation is hard, and so we try to take the former without the latter, but it doesn't work that way. We read his words about discipleship and think they are only for those who are really serious about their faith. That's like for the elders and for the people leading Bible studies and stuff like that. But they are commands that Jesus gives to all his believers. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take up your cross and follow me. Choose the good portion and sit at my feet. And not only is it a command to be a disciple, not only is it a command, but if we go back to the song that we sang just before I came up here to preach, he is worthy of our discipleship. Jesus is better But we are forgetful, and we must be reminded. This is why the Lord's Supper 
is so critical to our spiritual growth. If you're here this morning and you're a regular attender in this service, but you only come to the Lord's Supper every now and again, please, I beseech you, come to the Lord's Supper and be ministered to. Grow in the grace of remembering Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf. Because here's why. The more we recognize His love and sacrifice, the more we want to love and serve Him. It comes naturally out of us. J.D. Vance wrote a memoir called Hillbilly Elegy. It's about his experience of coming up from poor roots in southwest Ohio and the, the hill country of Kentucky. Now, I can't give a full endorsement of the book due to the language, but it is an excellent story. J.D. is from a broken family. His dad was never there. I think his dad divorced his mother when he was three. His mother struggled with substance abuse to the point where his grandmother took him in to give him a stable home. Now listen, J.D. wasn't an easy kid. He was mouthy. He was disobedient. He was lazy. And his grandmother, who he called Mama, any of you who are familiar with that part of the country know that that's actually a pretty common Mama and Papa. So Mama, she was pretty rough around the edges herself. She wasn't outwardly loving or kind towards J.D. At one point, J.D. was failing Algebra II, and Mama wrote him really hard about his grades. She knew he was capable of doing better. He said he needed an expensive graphing calculator to do the homework. She told him, she told him he'd have to figure out a way to get it. Just figure it out. Go get one. So he tried to steal one from the radio shack, and he got caught. Well, Mama came and bailed him out, and on the drive home, she surprised him with the calculator. Now, due to her tight finances, this came at a great sacrifice to her. And a short time later, J.D. witnessed her humiliate herself and beg the Meals on Wheels delivery guy for more food. But he was only able to give her one meal, and so she split that meal between herself and J.D., but his portion was the lion's share. Now, shortly thereafter, it clicked for J.D. Despite her gruff manner, she loved him. And the sacrifices she made for him were evidence. It was a turning point in his life that changed his entire trajectory. And I'm sure we wouldn't have his book if she hadn't made those sacrifices. He got a part-time job. He applied himself to his schoolwork. He graduated high school He joined the Marine Corps. He served in Iraq. He went to the Ohio State University for his bachelor's degree and was accepted and graduated uh, at the law school at Yale, which is the perennial number one law school in the U.S., probably the finest in the world. Mama sacrificed her money and food and was willing to beg, humiliate herself for J.D. When he understood... What she did for him, it changed his life. The sacrifices that Mamaw made for J.D. are but the faintest shadow of the sacrifice that Christ Jesus made for us on the cross. The more we come to understand his love for us, the easier it becomes to put forth the effort to know him better. That's the foundation of true discipleship. 
understanding his sacrifice and love at the cross. If that's not in place, all of our effort will be in vain. Now, here's the thing. Every day, we have the opportunity to understand more clearly the imminence, the greatness, the wonder of Jesus and be changed on the inside because of that. And then as we're changed in the inside, it flows out naturally into our lives. That's a fact. The question of personal discipleship is this. Will we apply ourselves? The Apostle Peter commends us to do so. If you have your scriptures open, I would ask you to read along because I want you to see these words for yourself. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. If you're not sure where it is, it comes after 1 Peter. I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail, fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to finish by saying this. I know, a special word actually for mothers this morning, especially young mothers, but really all mothers with kids still at home. This may feel like, are you kidding me? I'm already totally buried. I'm barely getting through every day as it is. And you want me, you're telling me, that I need to do more? And all I would say to you is this. To all who are burdened, whether it's the weight of tight finances, marital challenges, struggles with children, lack of work, poor health, difficult children, Jesus says, Come to me. To all who are burdened serving the good things of life, he says, come to me and I will show you the best thing in life. To those who are buried under the burden of mental illness, he says, come to me. To those who are heavy laden under the burden of sin, he says, come to me. I will teach you to repent. 
and take up my yoke and learn from me. When you are buried under the weight of life, whether it's due to circumstances outside of your control or due to your own sin, the call to personal discipleship may seem overwhelming to you. But that's exactly who Jesus is calling. That's the moment when you need him most. So come. He said, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. And what? I will give you rest. If you want to know rest from your burdens, set down your yoke and put on the yoke of Jesus Christ and learn from him. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have given us such a good Savior, Jesus. Lord, we're so thankful for him. Lord, we just want to draw near to him. This new year gives us a new opportunity to renew our efforts. Lord, not that we might gain salvation. That was gained at the cross. But that we might know you better. That we might build our house on the rock. So that when the storms of life come, our house will stand firm in Jesus. Lord, we love you this morning and we are so thankful for your son. Bless our day and this week. In your son's name we pray, amen.